Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now. For the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. I accept your challenge, Doctor. I wouldn't miss it. Dr. Pulaski challenges Data to solve the Sherlock Holmes mystery in the holodeck. There is your killer. Fever! But the evil Moriarty seizes the ship's computer. The time for games is over. In a ruthless plot to sabotage the Enterprise on Star Trek The Next Generation. This is Peter Helmstrom. I'm a screenwriter on the sci-fi television show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Incel Company. Out in source right now. And I'm Lisa Klink. I was a writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I have a short story out in the first issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. The evolution of a script from a pitch to the screen is a long and arduous process, which most people in America will thankfully never have to deal with. (laughs) The intent and passion of the original pitch are sometimes lost in the development, while other times the script only truly discovers itself when the actors perform it before the cameras. 
In recent memories, there are many instances of a film meant to be one movie split into two, or a project meant to be two movies condensed into one. Plans for a television, plans for television are almost constantly in flux as episode orders are increased or decreased, budgets are always seem to be cut, and actor availability is constantly in question. One famous example is a project designed for great things only to be reduced to closer to production was from season two of The Next Generation, an episode which always in my mind is one of the highlights of the show and still to this day remains one of the best of the season. Elementary, my dear Data. And on today's show, we have the writer of that episode, Brianna Lane. Thank you very much for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks for calling. So tell us, how did you get involved with writing in the first place? Writing in general or not writing? Forever. Did it when I was a kid. Always wanted to be a writer. Writer and an inventor and a scientist, but always a writer. Always, always, always. The trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So how did you hook up with Star Trek? Uh, you know, Star Trek was the one show, the one, the one gig that served all those needs. Because yep. co- playing with cosmology when I was a little kid um, and writing, and then suddenly here I was on Star Trek doing it face up. How to get there? Um my agent called one day one day and said, do you want to go do Star Trek Next Generation? And I said, I have not seen it. Um, but sure, sounds like fun. Um, and uh, he sent over, I said, send me over. He said, I can send you a bunch of tapes. I said, no, just send me scripts. And so he sent me a bunch of scripts uh, so I'd get caught up on the, it was during the first, end, towards the end of the first season. And uh, so he sent me a bunch of scripts. I read them, I went in and it flows from, I, I'm not going to just Go on. You know, I'm happy to go on. We're, we're here for the that's going how on. I walked so, in the, uh, that's how I walked in the door was sort of, I was walking in the door and knowing that I had probably an assignment at least, mm-hmm. um, but you still got to go in and meet everybody and you got to talk about what the story is going to be. And, you know, you never know who you're going to run into who goes, oh no, not that guy. So, <laughs> so did you sell a picture? That was the guy days. Days. That was the Brian days. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, you know, your, your resume is so expansive. I mean, you'd, you'd worked in Hollywood and done so much, uh, a variety of different work. Had you been a science fiction fan all your life or was it, was this yeah. a, a, a job that you were just like, this sounds The earliest books I read, uh, were Jules Verne. I loved sci-fi. Um, probably not as much as some total fanatics who read every author. I had certain authors I liked, like Jules Verne, um, but I just loved the notion of saying, what if, what if, what if, what if, you know, all day long and trying to predict, you know, I wasn't just in a crazy science fiction. I was really in a science fact. What, what did I really think the world was going to be? And what did I really think was already lying out there that we, you know, just hadn't accessed yet. So, you know, before I wrote any script for any show at any time, I walk around in the old days smoking cigars and <laughs> contemplating what the shape of the universe is, what's really the cosmology I believe now, and how can I refine my sense of cosmology? And that's deeper things too. Are we permanent? Do we go on in some other fashion? You know, what are the forces? That, why are we here? Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? You know, fundamental questions. So I always start on that level before I start bringing it down to the characters of whatever show or whatever piece I'm writing. Mm. That's great. You watched the original series of Star Trek? Yes, when I was a kid. Um, And I didn't... Yes, I did. I watched them all. I didn't quite get it. I remember feeling it's not... It doesn't have... uh, I watched, you know, growing in the... I watched repeats of things that were around when I was really a kid in the 50s, which was... um, 
Oh, what's the, what's the guy with the rocket pack? Um, Commander Cody. Commander, Commander Cody. Cody. <laughs> I love Commander, I love Commander yeah. Cody and Whirly Birds. These were like uh-huh. syndicated shows, right? Yeah. And so, so I love that. Though, or, or Aquanauts, I remember. Meeting one of the actors who was an Aquanaut at the market. That was great. Um, so... Uh, I, so I, when we got, by the time we got to Star Trek, I was, ex- and it was in color as opposed <laughs> to black and white, I was expecting more from the effects. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of bothered by the fact that it wasn't better effects wise, that it was just, you know, it was low rent. For, it wasn't low rent, but for television, it was all they could afford within that context, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But it just seems aspects of it were silly. So you really had to, overlook what you were seeing and imagine more what it, what it must really be like. And there was a, you had to, as a kid, wanting it to be all shoot 'em ups and craziness and running around. Star Trek wasn't so much. Every episode got to that in some weird way. But if you had dropped all that out of it, it probably would have been a better show in my mind because <laughs> it really was about the people and it was, it was looking at deeper things. And, and, um, so I liked it, and yet it wasn't my favorite show. Mm-hmm. So when Next Generation came along, and I had been doing so many other things by then, you know, professionally, that um, I can't say that I leaped right out and said, oh, I can't wait to watch this show, because it's still in my head. I wasn't sure what it was. And by then, Star Wars had come around, right? There'd been Star Wars and all the effects. You know, by then, everything was big and booming and tons of effects and tons of, you know, everything was going so fast into digital, even by that point. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and, you know, we were, when we were producing stuff, we were constantly fighting with, well, let's see, if you want to paint a cloud in, that's $100,000. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's how that stuff was in those days. It's like, I remember when Harry Potter movies came out, I had a student uh, in uh, one of my adult classes at UCLA teaching writing, and she worked at Warner's in, in post-production and one day she said, you want to come down? We're doing the Harry Potter movie. And I want to show you what all the gear is. And I said, sure. And she took me down. She took me to a building. And we went downstairs. And the entire basement or subfloors of the building, the entire thing were filled with these huge servers just all over the place. And she, this is as silly as this sounds. And you can imagine this was like 2001, maybe. When this, and, she, and she proudly said, look at this. This is one gigabyte. <laughs> Swear to you. Wow. Swear to you. It's like that, that's how fast this whole thing has changed, right? And so, so and that was allowed them to do the effects on the original Harry Potter, which was pretty mm-hmm. impressive. So anyway, back to effects. So Star Trek didn't have that. Anyway, so next generation I didn't dive into until my agent said, you know, you can have a job there. Cats <laughs> <laughs> said, let's eat the court. <laughs> well, and and of course it, it's it's um you know, the first season of Next Generation was a first-run syndicated show. It uh, wasn't a, a... It was high-profile because of the IP, but it wasn't... There wasn't the sort of industry expectation of success. It was still kind of a low-budget thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you had worked for well, a while. Well, budgets on the shows... Budgets on the shows were really good. Mm-hmm. Paramount put the money into the show itself because they were able to cheat on the above the line. Like, writers did not get paid what you would have been paid on a network show. Yes. Right, uh, which is kind of what I was pointing to is that like there's there's uh, uh, you know you had been working in Hollywood for a while at this point you'd worked on Remington Steel uh, you know some other shows out there and so I imagine career wise you know maybe it wasn't like the top of the list of like let's let's you know go for this show type thing right it it, it seemed fun and my career if there's one thing about my career was that I always took on 
something I hadn't done in terms of genre, in terms of style, in terms of whether it was comedy or whether it was drama. I was one of the few that wrote half hour comedy and hour drama. Mm -hmm. Um, or half hour or hour dramedies, you know, that we did. I mean, we always thought of Remington as a flat out comedy when we wrote sure. it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what Hunter was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, I always tried to, you know, if, gee, if I did a cop show this week, I better do something more fun next week or more different. So the notion that here I finally get to write some sci-fi as opposed mm-hmm. to just kind of goofy, you know, goofy science stuff that I did a lot of in Remington, um, it was great. So the notion of doing Star Trek was, I, I remember being quite excited by the, I didn't care that it was going to pay me less. It was just got to, got to. Yeah, which I, uh, I, I, you know, Remington Steel is, it, it's a bit of a hard show to find these days. I don't think it's on any streaming network. And it's, yeah, which is it's, a, it's too bad. It, was it is a too show. bad. It's a really, it's a really fun show. And it's, uh, oh, yeah, I love it, that show. Yeah, you know. It was it, fun to work on, I must say. Like you wrote, uh, what was it, eight episodes? Nine episodes? No, I wrote, um, Ninety-four that I have my name. On. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I mean, okay. you know, look, you know, when you're on staff, you write a lot that you don't put your name on, right? You, you, yeah. There's, there's, I'm on the policy board at the Writers Guild for credits these days, or for the last number of years, and um, and it's just fascinating to watch how people vie for credits or think, you know, when when you're on staff, theoretically, you're being paid to be on staff as well as being paid for your episodes, and you ought to, and part of being on staff is to rewrite other scripts so that everything's in line. Some people are just insistent that they want the credit for it too. And so I just, yeah. I don't get that. <laughs> so, but, I but I do recall a particular script of a guy who is a friend, still a friend. Um, but I wrote his script from a blank page to the end because we had to throw out the draft he had. Mm-hmm. And he uses that draft to get work. <laughs> wow, so that's always that's always kind of bothered me. Yeah, <laughs> so welcome, to, welcome. You want Hollywood backstage Hollywood? That that's there. You go backstage Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so you're working on shows like like Remus and Steel. You're working on shows uh, uh, in that sort of ilk, and then your agent puts you up for Star Trek, right? right. Um, had you known anyone on on the production before that, or were you going no. in pretty blind? Okay, no, pretty I knew blind. executives at Paramount because yep. I'd worked on a number of shows there, and I had some other deals there. Um, but no, I didn't know anybody there and I had not met Gene yet. Okay. Okay. So talk to us a bit about that initial, uh, uh, was it, was it more of an interview process or did you go into pitch or like, what was, what was the process? Little like little I mean, I, you know, I, I always like to, I always like to walk out of a room with a deal for something that I brought in as it was something they gave me. I'm fine with something they gave me. Cause then, you know, you got the deal. Sure. But I'd rather go in and tell them something I'm really enthused and in the mood to write. So no, I went in, um, Met with Morris Hurley, the <laughs> supposed showrunner at the time. <laughs> um, your story's there. Um, and at some point during that, I believe during that meeting also, then um, Rick Berman came in and a couple other people came in who were in and around on South. This was toward the end of the first season. They hadn't, like I said, they hadn't wrapped yet because then I went to the wrap party. Right. So it was, it was right around then. And they were trying to get ahead for the next season. And so... Um, I went in with a, a bunch of story areas that I thought would be fun. And they had on the they had on a blackboard, I can't remember if it was a blackboard or a whiteboard, but I think it was a blackboard for some reason. And they had a bunch of notes up there of potential kind of potential areas. When I say that, it would say like story number three, holodeck. Right. <laughs> right. It didn't say what. <laughs> they just like they knew they needed to do. So these are really general story areas. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And they also told me, they showed me their budgets and everything. 
and their money was good, you know, because I produced some series too. And so used to dealing with budgets and knowing what every dollar is and where it goes and how the studio slides losses from other shows onto your budget, which is the part <laughs> I never liked, mm-hmm. uh, which they deny doing, but they do. Um, and so I, so they had a good budget and they had great sets and they had, they'd been told they could spend a bunch of money to build some incredible set that they were going to then use in all their promos and conventions. And, you know, they would, they would, they would use imagery from that everywhere. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to build some really cool set. That's how we got to the Victorian London wow. set. Interesting. That's, that's the whole yeah. point. So I knew I had that. So when I said, let's do, because I always tried to pitch episodes of anything, if you're a freelancer, when you come in, um, where your heroes become the client. Mm-hmm. Where it's really a show about them, not so much. Well, I mean, what they encounter becomes the catalyst as opposed to the show. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it was certainly that was the approach to Remington every single week was how can we, focus on their relationship, what villain would help their relationship along, you know, what, mm-hmm. you know, if we, what's the, you know, my was always like, the best way to get two people to talk about their relationship is lock them in a, in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a um, coffin and throw them in a, <laughs> in a crematorium and they're going to, yes. they're going to discuss it. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so at least, you know, anyway, so it was that kind of stuff. So, and I always used to try to pitch the continuing villain wherever mm-hmm. I went. Because yeah. I'd grown up watching, you know, uh, Wild Wild West with Dr. Loveless. Yeah. I loved that kind of thing. I didn't actually watch the Sherlock Holmes movies, mm-hmm. Basil Rathbone ones with, you know, with Moriarty. But I'd read all the Holmes stories. And Moriarty doesn't actually exist in the stories, but he's a presence. Right. He's never a character who's in a scene on a page. It's just Holmes and Hearsay talking about him. It's, right, and even when at the Reichenbach Falls, that's not a scene that's in a story. That's a scene referred to after Holmes comes back. Right, and, right, and so um, I always went in. So when I went to Remington, the first time I, the first thing I pitched was Major Descoigne, the villain who you know who frames Remington and gets away and then comes back. Um, and it's always fun because the networks have to approve stuff like that because in those days you couldn't do series, right? Now we're so used to everything follows consecutively and you couldn't in those days. Everything had to be self-contained. Right. I had to say, oh, it's something else is going to happen. They, they freak out and go, well, that's a two-parter. How, how can they <laughs> syndicate it? Because when you syndicate it, they don't necessarily get run in the same order. I mean, right? So yep. and all their money, they don't make money. They don't even get break even until they syndicate it. Yeah. In those days. Now it's a whole different business model now, but fundamentally in those days, that was it. Get your hundred episodes, syndicate it, and then boom, you're making money. Hmm. It's like we were. What was I watching the other day? And there was a missing. There was. We were watching Dick Van Dyke the other night on Me TV, and um, there's an episode missing. Strange. Yeah. And so yeah. we've been trying to figure out like why didn't they? They ran one where he where he becomes a councilman, and they skip the next one. And there's never <laughs> another. But there's never a reference to the fact that he became a councilman. There's just an episode where he runs, becomes a councilman, and then he's never a councilman. That was what we were all used to in watching TV. You could run them in any order, see them in any order, see them in reruns. Didn't matter, you know, and that was the whole point of it. So so I used to always try to push it, see if I could have a continuing villain who could come back anytime. Didn't have to come back next week, come back another week. So... So when I got to Star Trek, just cut me off if I'm going too long. I had like 10 little one-liners and some of which were more thought out in my head of what would be fun to do. 
And one of them was a continuing villain. And when they told me about wanting to spend all this money and there was something, I don't know how London came up. I was working on a Charles Dickens, a fictional Charles Dickens adventure book mm-hmm. that sold. And I was working on it at the time and I mentioned that, but somehow London came up in our discussion and they said, oh, well, that might be, you know, London might be perfect. And I said, well, I know everything about Victorian London. I mean, yeah. I shelves full of stuff on Victorian London. I said, not just homes, but blah, blah, blah. I said, so what if, why don't we do a home story and have it, you know, have Moriarty and blah, blah, you know, see, see what we can do with him as, as a menacing figure. And so that's sort of, that was it. They all jumped to it and they all jumped to the notion of, oh my God, and, and uh, you know, an 1870 London street with, with the fog and the fun and they could all envision that immediately. And they, mm-hmm. I know that we, they talked to the production people immediately after my meeting and everybody got into how they were going to do that. And it became this thing that they did use. They were right. They used it at every convention. They used it in every in every promotional material. I got paid like an extra 50 bucks somewhere along the line. <laughs> Some weird, really weird little writer's guild thing where you get paid two cents for every time they show something. <laughs> <laughs> right, somewhere. And it was one of those kind of things. It was like, I didn't even know that existed, but it did because they re-ran those clips of those streets everywhere. They, that was their excuse for spending the money and they got their money's worth out of it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how the tail drives the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, so the, the pitch is bought. And then, uh, uh, you know, in my research, it, it indicated that this was initially meant to be a two-parter. Is that, is that correct? Or was that, yeah. uh, I wrote okay. it. I, well, yeah, I wrote it as a, it wasn't originally meant to be a two-parter. Mm-hmm. Remember it became a two-parter. Right. Um, I wrote it as a really full single episode with the character able to potentially come back. Mm-hmm. Because okay. of the way, because the way I was creating him on the holodeck, even if you wiped him out, like given the episode the way it currently runs, which, like I said, I watched it last night. Um, even when it currently runs, they talk about how they could blast him away, yep. right? Yep. And that's in my original first draft that you, yep. you can blast him away, um, send up some kind of particle beam through the holodeck and knock out everything that's there, other than the walls. And so um, he would, but he would still exist in the computer's memory, no matter what. And so he could have been brought back in any way, shape, or form, even though they tried to put some shackles on him so he couldn't regain control of things. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the original version had a... I always keep a lot of plot into stories. It's easy to thin it down later. There's nothing worse than having a story that has too little going yes. on. Right? Yes. And again, you want to do something that makes all of our characters... This is a big... There's a lot of characters in Star Trek, but you want to make all of them be reactive to something, Right. We knew they were going to be reactive to Moriarty seizing control of the Enterprise and being able to bang it around. But I always wonder, it's always, to me, you put, it's always fun when you put a clock on whatever your episode is. Mm-hmm. Not that you're telling, to me, it's also fun if you can do it in real time, but those stories are hard, hard to do. Um, but you do do them and they always work well. But if you can put a clock on, so in the original version of it, they're in a place where they're, if I remember, I showed you guys the script, um, they're in a place where the whole enterprise is going to get sucked into a, into a space disaster. I can't yeah. remember if yeah. it was, was a supernova or whatever it was, but like or a red giant collapsing something. Hmm. Um, but they were going to get sucked into that if they couldn't get away. And when, and when Moriarty seized control of the ship, he stopped it in its tracks. Mm. And so they were then subject to that disaster. So they had a clock running. They had to stop him. You know, like a real Holmesian mystery. They had to stop him. Right. Picard was going to have to make a difficult decision 
you know, they were going to have to have their Reichenbach Falls moment. And, and so all that was combined into one. And then later they decided that they would, because everybody loved the character, this is while they were getting the last drafts in produ- into production, everybody loved the character, the network was happy with the character, blah, blah, blah. Um, they decided to spin it out into two episodes. So a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff fell out and it just became the confined story you see today. Mm-hmm. And then in the next story, when he comes back, then you have some of that external urgency that was in the original one. Mm, okay, I see. I gotcha. see. So it wasn't so much of a uh, uh, where the the first draft was a condensed version, but rather uh, the the later drafts were actually like taking elements of the first draft and like splitting them in two. Basically, exactly. That's exactly. It's really interesting. Um, because yeah, I mean, you sent along this first draft and I, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about that because sure. oftentimes here on the briefing room, we're talking about the finished product with the writer and, and they're able to give insight into the writing process this way. But, uh, because we have the first draft right here, it is such an interesting kind of, uh, uh, uh alternate version of, of the episode. I thought we'd, we'd, it would be really interesting. And, th- and this is common on TV series, which is so that I always found that the most fascinating part of the process. You know, if you're on staff and and given the power to rewrite your own stuff all the way to the end, then you, you sort of stay through with it, and you you tend to be happier with your final draft, even though it's even though it reflects everybody's notes, but sure. still you feel like it came out of your typewriter at the end, no matter what. But when you're on when you're when you're on a, basically have a freelance episode coming in, uh, it gets away from you pretty quickly. So you try to get everything <laughs> yep. you can possibly get into there up front. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> and then you hope. <laughs> And hang on that they're not going to screw it up too badly as they go down the as they go down the road with it to get it shot. Yeah. So before we actually talk about the first draft, could you talk a bit more about that? Because like, so you turn in the first draft. From there, uh, were you involved with the rewrites, or was that more? Yeah, I got. What happened was I got. This is when it got political. I got. Um, when I first went in there, I met all the people, and then they introduced me to Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Gene took me away from everybody else into his back room. We immediately hit it off. I don't know why. We were just kindred spirits. And so he showed me all his toys. He showed me all, you know, all the tech companies sent him stuff for free all the time just, mm-hmm. to, just to show it off to him. And in, that, in those days, the thing he showed me that he was most proud of that he didn't even know how to use yet. He said, look at this thing. It's a scanner. it seemed very star trek to him yeah and it was you know legal size scan anyways it was was wild and and i was looking at going this is amazing (laughs) it's like wow we're here it's like that's funny when i was watching the episode last night and they they were talking about the the victory that uh, jordy had built right in the episode Mm -hmm. the model of it and and i remember um and data says something about oh the about the how did he phrase this thing about the computer, computer generated? No, not computer generated, but the implication was that the computer had created it and then Jordi had to say, yeah. oh, no, I built it by hand, right? Yeah. But nobody thought of 3D printers. Yeah. Right. right. right? Now, right, of course, right. you did have the replicator. And there's a million ways you could have built that on Star Trek vis-a-vis the computer. But it leaped over the notion of having machines building out of building things in other ways, right? Yeah. So it was funny because I go when he said that last time, I went like, oh, when I watched it. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so I yeah, so I'm in with Gene and we're talking and we're knocking around and um and and uh knocking around ideas and talking about the series and I'm saying and I've read all the stuff they'd sent me, which was the scripts and whatever, kind of a little bit of a Bible that they had, which wasn't much, like a character description and some tech stuff. And I said to him, listen, you know, I'm doing the holodeck story. He said, I know it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. And um, 
And I said, okay, so I have a question for you. So I know what I'm, what I, what I do when I start plotting this. He said, sure. Anything. I said, how does a holodeck work? <laughs> and I'll know because I need to know how it works to know how sure. to figure out how Mario is going to seize control of it. Right. Cause I already knew that that was going to happen. And so, um, I will never forget. And he, he sat there and he looked at me for a second with that impish grin that he had. And he went, I have, I have no idea. How do you want it to work? <laughs> I said, no, seriously, what's like this? <laughs> and he said, Brian, he said, none. He said, I don't know. You can design. I said, do you want to do it? I said, yeah, I'd love to do the cosmology for Star Trek. I said, you're telling me the replicators and the transporters. And he said, no idea. They just work. <laughs> so, so with that, I went home and the first thing I did was create the science behind all the stuff that was already on Star Trek and worked yeah. in the Bible for the series. And that's what allowed me then when I wrote the script, when Data comes flying out of the holodeck with a piece of paper in his hand that Moriarty wrote on right through the image of the Enterprise, and we go, you know, and takes it to the, you know, takes it to the bridge. Did they go to the bridge? No, they went to the, the conference room. Yeah, yeah the, conference yeah, room, wherever yeah. it was. Yeah. Anyway, so wherever he takes them, and um, and there's and they're looking at it, and that allowed me to get through the network and everywhere else that they took something off the holodeck and it could exist outside the holodeck. Because right. prior to that, nobody would have been able to explain it, but I created the science that would allow that to occur, which we can talk about later in our show. Yes, well, uh, so you generated your own techno babble. <laughs> What's that? You generated your own techno babble. Oh yeah, God yes, yes. But, but <laughs> what I believe, that's what I truly believe about how the universe works. So yeah, and it, it flows out of you know real scientists, real you know Roger Penrose and Sir Roger Penrose now the late Sir Roger Penrose flows out of a lot of theories that that's twister theory and this is sort of modified twister theory that would allow for the some of this. Um, so it's it's a mix of quantum and this and that, um, and definitely relativity like crazy. It is so, so interesting. I don't think. Uh, I didn't peg it for uh, reading uh, uh, in a few minutes, but the one thing that did strike me when I was reading this was how like um, uh, Troy at one moment references how she could uh, sense the, the, the holograms and, and apparently as if it was like a regular thing, like she's just always sensing a certain level of consciousness from the hall, the holodeck. And I was like, Oh wow, that is, that is definitely not uh, something I would have thought of, but uh, yeah, it's well, so interesting. But. It flows out. It flows out of believing. I mean, should we do that before we go back to the question about second drafts? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Go for it. Science, so, okay. Look, here's the science of Star Trek. Okay. Everybody get out, get out your pen, pens and paper, <laughs> pencils and paper or your, or your devices. Um, we, we know that equations are about, finding equivalences, right? In math, there's an equal sign. This is the same as that. This, you know, but of course there's matter, there's functionality involved to get it to be that. And we know the most famous one is of course special relativity relativity E equals MC squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Flowing out of those little relationships is everything. Right, the, the the general relativity, which I'm not going to sit and do because that's more complex math, but that's the other thing that tells us how gravity works and why it works and what the effects of gravity are and why light, how light will bend and this and that, right? So, um, and that flows out of that. So I sat down and was looking at quantum theory was, was what Penrose tried to drive back into, really all the quantum theorists, but Penrose in particular tried to pull back into theory is where does consciousness come from and how does that impact it, right? Because, of course, under quantum theory, 
the thing may not exist until you're aware of it. If you, which means until you apply consciousness to it, it may not be there. Mm-hmm. Right? Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat and the whole nine years. So, what you begin to get is on one side of the equation, you have familiar stuff. You have mass and you have gravity. Okay, so basically general relativity. On the other side of the equation, you have consciousness, which we know must be applied, in, but either as a result of something or it's, or it's consciousness is what applies to something in order to come up with a result. And the other thing that you have, which is obvious, is information. Now, we don't know how to measure consciousness. We don't know how to measure information, although we kind of do know how to measure information. But information is the notion of the memory. I shouldn't phrase it that way, but I'm going to. It's the record. That's better. The record of everything that happens. Okay, so it's more than simply flying out into space faster than speed of light and catching up with I Love Lucy when little Ricky was born, you know, (laughs) the original broadcast of it, catching up with it in time and space because it's still out there moving away from us, but we can get it. So it's more than just that. It's the notion of everything that's ever existed and how each of us are impacting it and everything that's happening right now. And where does this go? And and in order to make the transporter work, in, in order to, and in quantum theory, in order to say that something can exist here and there at the same time, but not, because quantum theory doesn't say it's in two places at the same time. It just says the minute you stop looking at it here, it's already there. Right. Right? So as soon as you apply consciousness over there, it's there. When you go back, it goes back. So we, it feels like it's there at the same time, but it's not, and it can't be. So, but and that's the you know the, the, anyway that's that's the the you know spooky stuff at a distance. Mm. What was what was Einstein's line? Spooky, I can't remember. Anyway, um, so the notion was that uh, that's the transporter, right? How do we get you from here to there? Can we really move you there? No, we can't teleport you. We can't just take you and move you. If you could just take you apart into your inform- in, until you become your information, but if we took you apart and you became the pieces of your mass, we'd still have to move you physically, right? right? So that can't work. So if we, but if we look at quantum, quantum says you're there, you're already there. Mm. We'd have to lose you here and find you there, mm. right? Right. So now the question is, how do we do that? How do we lose? How do we lose consciousness of you here in a way? that you can completely be recreated there. And we know ourselves that at least the form that we know ourselves as is a physical form, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, right? We've, you know, we, we know how to break ourselves down and what we are. So how it, so could we be transported to a place that doesn't have those elements? No. Um, but what elements are there? The, if, if the information were already there, which look at the information as the blueprint of what we are, um, if the information is already there, can it be coalesced in some fashion where it can be conscious and operational? Can it impact its environment? Can it impact other people or other creatures around it? And then we would say that's conscious. Then we would say that's us, even if we look different or are different, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to postulate that the information, this conversation, is not just here and it's not just going to move away at the speed of light but it's already there. It's already every, like a hologram, it's every, the entirety of it is in every little piece of it everywhere at once. And it's instantaneously there, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do we access it there? How do we make it operational or functional there? 
And that's where you get into our little equation of what's it, what does it take to develop consciousness? What does it take to create the to create mass matter out of mass out of gravity? And you know how do we break it down? I mean, you know, the Terminators were good about about postulating that if we if you transport you even through time, you're going to come there. Na- you're going to wind up there naked. You're not going to wind up right. there. But are you going to wind up there with all the zillions of critters on you, all the DNA, all the right, all the mm-hmm. you know, all the other DNA that's on you at the same time? It isn't just your DNA that's moving that would have to move. It's everything, and more. Right. There's more of that than there is of you, and you wouldn't be functional without it, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's all those things. So it gets pretty complicated, and the only way to really believe in it is to assume. Every part of it's already over there. Every part of it's already over here. We just have to find a way to jump to look at it there. And when you're there, you can't be here. So that part's good. So so it still saved us with the transporter images of you dissolve because you, you just disappear from our con. You're not really dissolving. You're disappearing from our consciousness. That As we look at you, we're the people in the holodeck or in the transporter, looking, transporter room looking at you. And then you pop up somewhere else now. Theoretically, wherever you go, somehow we have to postulate it in, in the maybe this is where dark matter comes in. Maybe the dark matter is all the stuff we need to build ourselves and our clothing and our, and our whatever at any given moment in time. So it's all there and it just has to be turned, it just mm-hmm. right? It just has to be phased differently. And then there it is and it becomes us. So that's the you know that's the crazy thinking behind it, but that is what began to that is what defines the transporter. It's what defines the replicators. Mm-hmm. Um, all the basic stuff by which Star Trek moves and grows. But there, it begs the question of if you can do that, why do you go flying around? Yeah, <laughs> you, you can just jump there. Yeah. You can just be yeah. there. So, so you do have to, so you do, so you do have to postulate in that. Well, remember the transporter had limits of how far you could, it could possibly be functional in terms of connecting. And we can work out those limits in simple relativity too, that, you, or even just some, even Newtonian notion of gravity, and, you know, the further you get away, the less the effect. And so therefore you couldn't, you really couldn't get past a certain point at this point, unless we can somehow heighten the energy behind it. So that's the easy way to explain that. Get get away with the fact that we're still flying around in ships with you know matter <laughs> matter you know since the generators um, when we could really just should be able to jump. <laughs> so the notion then with like the hol- the holodeck is like uh, it's it's compiling things, but they weren't technically there to begin with, right? So like you know I'm I'm trying to make the connection of like how Deanna Troy could be picking up levels of consciousness from from these these holo- these holograms, right? Because they because everything you think is actually real because it has it has a as long, it's a real thought it's a real image in your head mm-hmm. it, it attaches to it, it, what the holodeck does is attach it to matter, mm-hmm. okay. right? It's no different than a painter painting. Mm-hmm. In painter's head, and the painter puts it down, and suddenly the painter's got a painting from you know with the with the image right on it. So if if the the holodeck creates matter, it creates something. You can create chairs you sit on, and floors you walk on, and ladders you can climb up, and paper. So it's creating matter. So once you once you accept the notion that it's doing that, um, then it shouldn't be a problem taking it off the holodeck with the right overrides. To do mm-hmm. it, and that's that was the ultimate solution. There was mm-hmm. him 
with Moriarty with the override in there for Moriarty based on Jordy's original order to it. You, know, um, you could easily do that, but you mm-hmm. could you certainly could create matter that you and you designed, but it's just an extension of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Interesting. Right? It's an extension of your own consciousness. So, hmm. wow. Which you know, it again, it's another one that's <laughs> it comes back on itself because mm-hmm. are we all then an invention of someone else's? Are we you know whose consciousness are we the invention of? But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But but we'll never get out of that you know out of that quandary. So yeah. That's, and so how much of this did you pitch? What's that? So how much of this did you pitch? Oh, this was it. I went back to Roddenberry and said, here's the scoop. Here's how this works. And he went, great. And that's ever since then, that's how it all worked. That's great. I don't know if anybody there could explain it other than me <laughs> at the time, because I remember telling it to Morris and some of the other people, and they were, you know, uh, it's like, do we, need that? do we need that? They just want to know it worked. And so as long yeah. as Roddenberry was happy, they were fine. <laughs> that's fair. I, 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 I mean, I, I like the explanation. It, it works for me. That's, that's pretty cool. I, uh, you know, the transport is always one of those things with with fans that we're all we're all just like, yeah, it it works. Just yep. just go with it. Just go with it. <laughs> and that was, again, that was Gene's thing. But then we got you know we got better on it. Got yeah. If you don't know how to make, if you don't know how it works, and or you don't study how it try, I mean, even if you accidentally discover that it, you it can work, and then if you use it, kind of like every drug we take of any kind, we really don't know what the hell they do. Yeah. Um, we really don't because we don't really fully understand the, you know our own bodies and how uh, how the immune system works and all that. So we just know a lot of a lot of what we do and a lot of science is observational. Um, you know that is the scientific method is see if you can do it and see if you can repeat it. <laughs> Once you can read it, but we don't necessarily know how it how the I, I this is pet for me because I have rheumatoid arthritis. I take all sorts of biologics and I'm just a total guinea pig. We have no idea if they're going to work, how they work, why they work. We just know they accidentally did work. It's no different than, um, God, what's the drug? Um, anyway, any drug you can think of. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about this uh, first draft right here. Um, sure. Uh, what I find fascinating about it is at the very beginning, um, it starts in, in much more of a like present tense type fashion in the sense of like you're uh, dropped right into the middle of a of a home's mystery of a home uh, of Snomia, the yes. lines about the violin right <laughs> and uh what i thought was so like i can imagine watching this um in in 88 and and being thrown for a minute thinking like oh am i actually on the wrong channel is this the Sherlock Holmes <laughs> episode but the way it's it's described and the way it's written is is uh really good because it does flow in the way that I've seen a lot in Sherlock Holmes movies is that it, it gives you establishing of the room. You're hearing Watson's voiceover and then eventually you rest on the violin you pull back and then you see data in the Holmes role. And I thought that was really clever. I, I liked that a lot. Um, well, Rob Bowman's a great director. Love Rob yeah. Bowman. Yeah. Um, you know, thank God for him later on the X-Files, right? Of course. <laughs> yes. Um, and but at this point, I imagine you didn't, you didn't know um, who, uh, the director would be right, or did you know that at this point? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, I knew enough directors by that point because all the series I'd been on, or you know, how many directors I'd hired when I was running stuff. Um, and I don't recall, they might have told me Bowman, you know, you'll have Bowman, particularly yeah. when they signed, particularly when they started adding money to the budget. You go for guys you can totally, guys or girls, but you go for people who, um, you can totally trust who aren't going to yeah. you know what to do and aren't going to go crazy at the same time. Yeah. He, he was particularly masterful with camera movement. And so it was sort of easy to write it. I mean, the, the magic for me as a freelancer on that was it was the first show I ever was on 
including ones that I of my, of my own, where I wrote something and they built it. Mm-hmm. Nobody came back to me and said, oh, no, can we change it? This this doesn't work. We can't afford that. Or, gee, the set, we, the location we found doesn't match what you wrote. Can you rewrite the scene to match the location? Right. I mean, and so it was one of those things where I actually tested them. I described the street and they did it exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it just blew me away. And then I described the machine. I thought they'll never do this. And I detailed out how the machine would look. And somebody had in, you know, in the, out there in the design had looked at it and just mapped it out exactly hmm. the match. And so they couldn't wait to show it. I mean, it was like, oh my yeah. God. And that was a unique experience. That was the only show where that's literally whatever crazy thing came out of my head, boom, there it was. You know, that's somebody, amazing. Somebody built it. So it was so much yeah. fun. Um, Oh, you asked earlier about the second draft. I did it just to to wrap that up real quick. Sorry, I didn't mean to take you off. (laughs) Um, I did a second draft and a full second draft and a little bit of a next draft. What happened was office politics, which was Gene, for them, for a lot of people, couldn't get along with Gene. Right? Um, I did. And we used to have lunch all the time and hang out. I mean, you know, so he was great. And so one of my favorite people. And, but I, you know, I didn't know him until I had the, the job. Um, but he became one of my favorite people. And so um, other people there did not have that sort of relationship. And particularly Morris Hurley did not. Hurley constantly was being told by having his scripts thrown back at him by Gene saying, this isn't good. This isn't right. Well, you don't know what you're doing. And so... This when I wrote this, it was originally. I think it aired as what episode four of that season. Episode three. Episode three. Yeah. Right. Okay. It was originally supposed to be four or five, mm. um, but Hurley couldn't get his approved, mm. and so I wrote fast. And this happened to me on a number of shows. I wrote really fast, and the networks tended to approve my drafts really fast, and so I, they'd move my stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so I w- had gone to New York on some other business. Um, with one of my wives and, <laughs> who had business in New York. And I was, I remember doing the second draft there and I came back and went to Paramount and dropped off the draft. And when I dropped off, or maybe this was a third, it was a third draft. When I went to drop it off, I put it on the thing. Everybody said, oh, hey, good to see you. And I put the draft down. And there was another draft of my script that I hadn't written. Really? And I looked at the production board, which is right above where these, you know, because you walk in the office and they have a stack of drafts for crew to come in and grab them when needed, when there's a new new pages, new colored pages, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and right above it was the schedule. And I saw that my, while I was slaving away on this latest draft, they were already about to shoot. They were shooting like wow. tomorrow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so I didn't see the last, I didn't, had nothing to do with the, the last draft. It wasn't even just the usual production changes because it was rushed into production ahead of itself anyway. So went from my drafts to this last draft, which had the changes that split it into. I had partly pulled stuff out on the early early one because I knew we were going to do a second one. But then this one had more, had other little changes, particularly on the edges. Yeah. The beginnings and the ends, why we were there, what was going on, like I said, and they saved that for the next episode. Yeah. I was still still retaining that for a second episode. I I see. I yeah, what I was gonna I was gonna mention that uh, in the first draft here, there's kind of you could say a B plot involving Picard, and and as you talked about the kind of imploding uh, red giant red star 
Um, and Picard is, is doing the classic thing of, uh, you know, post, you know, pondering whether it's a good idea to, to give some of his crew a little R and R and his crew and Wesley's there just to be like, no more work. And uh, it's like, <laughs> yes, I like you kid. <laughs> um, there was also and, all the comedy stuff with data, trying to yeah. teach data how to, what a joke was. Yeah. And that was another thing too. I wanted to talk about at the beginning where there's a few scenes in 10 forward involving a, this <laughs> including a very, uh, 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 what's the right word? Sultry, um, <laughs> uh, bartender who's uh, kind of hitting on data, uh, right. shamelessly. <laughs> and, right. and, uh, uh, I thought that was uh, a little fun. Um, but, uh, I still felt bad for data in that moment. Cause I was like, Oh, data, you, you have no idea what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he'd, um, sort th- he'd sort through it. I'm sure. <laughs> he is fully functional. So we have to presume. <laughs> that, yeah. But, uh, it might've been but, little data. <laughs> But um, but still, a lot of the broad strokes are still the same, and um, there the Jordy is uh, still um, dismayed at, at Data for not kind of wanting to engage in the holodeck program in a more um, um, present tense kind of way. You have the debate with Pulaski, who's Pulaski is there being like, well, machines don't think that way; they think in a very different way, and you're wanting Data to think in a very human way. And then the wager is put into place, and they get onto the holodeck itself, and then. Um, I believe in in the script it happens a little sooner. Is that is that Pulaski is abducted? Um, but it's, it's, in, the, in the final version, it's redundant. They go in there yeah. twice, right? Yes, they go, yes, yes. They go in and come out, and they go in and come out. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> that, I, that is not my structure. I would never do that. But we will you talk know, about you that. Go in, we... and you come out, you change the bat, you go back in. You know, yes, and, and you're there. And also, I had a lot more. St- I had all the stuff with impossibility. I had the whole, you know, I had much more more home stuff in there. Yeah, there was a lot more home stuff in there. And um, I was like, well, because it was when you eliminate the impossible, right? When you eliminate the impossible, right. the improbable, then what's left, no matter how improbable, is going to be the truth. And so, um, all that stuff dropped away because it was trying. I can't remember if I'd already done it or not. I did a script. I did a feature for TriStar um, based on a best-selling, a huge best-selling novel um, by Trevenian, uh, who had done the Iger Sanction. Uh, and the hero in it um, faced, a, he had, anyway, the hero in it faced a world of information and spies and this and that. And he had finally hit out and said, I've had enough of being an assassin and blah, 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 blah. Of course, he gets dragged back into it. That's the whole point. And in the end, he faces the world's greatest supercomputer that knows everything. Some of, it's from, some of this was in the book, some of it what I came up with. Um, but how, do you, how did you beat that? And, and the notion was always, what's the difference between a man and a machine? What's the difference right. between a man and a computer? And the difference is that a computer cannot see what is not there. Right. 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 Was the notion of imagination. And so that's what I had built into Star Trek. And I don't know if I built it in Star Trek first and then used it later. I can't remember the dates anymore. But it was right around yeah. that same time I was just playing that whole area of difference between man and machine. And so that was sort of in there with the impossibility notion that the way to de- defeat data was to do something impossible because he couldn't logic it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to talk to, about that here in a minute too, because I think that's a really clever uh, uh, change that didn't actually last to the, to the end of the episode. But, um, they, but crept I first it in there, they crept it in there when they, when they walked into the places where they were suddenly, they heard all the, they heard the footsteps and all that and then they'd walk in and it was a dead end. Yeah. But, but then they found, the, the, one then they found the door. The yeah, classic yeah. writers. Yes, Whereas exactly. in the in the original script, 
they had to accept the fact that there was no way out, but they had gotten out anyway, and then that would allow them to to be suddenly out. Yes. Right. Right. Um, But before that, I want uh, Lisa and I are going to do a little bit of a read in here um, (laughs) from uh, scene 19, uh, which is on page 24 of the first draft. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the moment just after... uh, Pulaski has been abducted and they found a clue as to Pulaski's whereabouts, but uh, Jordy is uh, not trusting the fact that anything is wrong. So we're just going to get right into this here. I'll read the uh, scene descriptions and the role of Jordy and uh, Lisa, if you want to, if you want to be data, that would be. Yes, sir. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Typecasting. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Loki in the background, if you could do some uh, background London noises, that would be great. He can do some background <laughs> purring for you. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, listeners, you can't see this, but Lisa's cat is a constant cameo appearance on this podcast. And we love it, <laughs> we love it. All right. Uh, the London Street alleyway entrance. As Data and Jordy wander out of the alley and along the street, up an incline towards an embankment, Data is not pleased, but Jordy's wearing a I told you so grin. Face it, Data, she's out to bust your chops, no matter what she had to resort to. Sure, she went on and on about how a win was not a win unless you played within the rules, and then she changed the rules to suit herself. Well, she has not won yet. I guess maybe she's made her point, huh? She's probably in 10 forward right now, laughing her head off. They walk for a beat in silence, then Data stops, turns to face Jordy. Tell me something, Jordy. Those chops of mine. Can everyone see that they are busted? <laughs> uh, Jordy suppresses a laugh, and before he can say anything, Lestrade rushes up. I guess I'll play Lestrade, too. Um, Holmes, thank God you came. Lestrade grabs Data's arm, steers him, with Jordy following, up the remainder of the incline to the embankment, where a crowd is gathered in a circle to look at something on the ground. Make way, please. Make way. Make way for Mr. Sherlock Holmes. The crowd parts, and Lestrade, Data, and Jordy push through to find an object of interest. Lying on the ground, the dead body of a middle-aged, mustached, distinguished man. Now the feet of Data, Jordy, Lestrade step into frame around the body as, It's murder, Holmes. Murder most foul. And the question is, Lestrade and Data stoop down to, for a closer inspection of the body, and all are now in frame as, Who? Inspector Lestrade, I am not the one to ask. For reasons strictly personal, I have just determined to close my consultancy. Henceforth, you will simply have to find a way to get along without me. Data rises and we go to New Angle, Data, Jordy, Lestrade, and Dead Body as Jordy and Lestrade rise alongside Data. I'm frightfully sorry to hear this, Holmes. I've come to rely on you a great deal. And despite your annoying peculiarities uh, and obnoxious arrogance... Uh, Inspector, perhaps I can be of assistance. As I take note of this dead man, I deduce that he was strangled and he knew his killer. Jordy's moment in the sun is quickly burst as, what kind of deduction is that? Anyone can see the finger marks on his throat, and since there are no signs of a struggle, it's obvious that his killer was a friend. Someone who knew he could get close to him and then sneak attack. Hell's bells, man. I've got no less than a dozen witnesses to a murder, and I know darn well who done it. But what I need Holmes here for is to figure out who the blasted corpse is. Will you do that much for me, Sherlock, for old time's sake? I deduce, then, that the perpetrator of this crime is someone you do not believe you can catch. Else you would do so and ask him your questions about the victim. I conclude, therefore, that the murderer is none other than Napoleon of Crime himself. Professor Moriarty? Precisely. 
I have, I have to hand it to you, Holmes, but now what about this corpse? I've got no ID, no personal effects, and no one around here has ever seen him before. Data nods, bends down to the body, examines its hand, then opens its mouth and checks out the teeth as... Hmm. Ink stains and writer's calluses on the fingers. Extensive dental work, uncommon for this place and time, a sign of wealth and high station. Now Data unbuttons the body's vest and shirt, eyes the chest. On the neck and chest, untanned passage pa- patches from the wearing of a neck chain and pyramidic frame, Freemason's mantle, medallion. And somehow, his face appears so familiar to me. So what's it all mean, Matt? Data, Data's got it. He rises, eyes Jordy. Forgive me for knowing who this is rather than reasoning my way to it, Jordy, but I have seen his photograph too many times. And in any event, reason does not seem to work right now. Inspector. The dead man is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Never heard of him. Knighted, you say? Data, how can this be? You, how can a man be murdered by the fictional criminal he created? From back in the crowd, the voice of Moriarty, Maleficent and evil. How uh, indeed, dear Sherlock. And Moriarty, tall, angular, in long frock, appears in the crowd, parts, appears as the crowd parts for him. Great Scott, it's Moriarty. Grab him. From without the crowd, Bobby's rush Moriarty, but... Mr. Computer, freeze the scene. And in response, everyone but Data, Jordy, and Moriarty is suddenly frozen like a statue mid-action. Moriarty points towards an older man, Colonel Moran, a big man who features a thin projecting nose, high bald forehead, and large grizzled mustache in sports formal wear and opera hats. Not him, Mr. Computer. Unfreeze my associate, Colonel Moran, please. Instantly, Moran is brought back to life. He smiles, a feral smile, draws an odd-looking gun, the fabled Von Herder air gun of the adventure of the empty house from under his frock, aims it at Data and Geordi. Moriarty steps up to the body of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, looks down at at it with a mixture of sadness and anger. My father. So that's who he was. He refused to tell me, even under the threat of death, and I always back up my threats. His image had been in my mind, his image and other images that I did not, do not understand, images that I cannot shake. So I sought him out, identified myself to him, demanded to know why he was plaguing my brain, but his only response was to kneel, to pray, to die. So I thank you for filling me in, even though I am puzzled by your reference to me as fictional. Was that meant as some sort of denigration, a denial of my many nefarious achievements, as if they were invented rather than real? All right, and I think we will uh, wrap it up right there. It goes on from there, but I think that's a fascinating uh, aspect to the story, which was... It was uh, a way better script, let's face it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to knock the one that everybody's seen and liked, but, (laughs) but you know, a lot of stuff that I had got cut out. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. In the end, it's the same. It's the same script. It's the same skeleton, but mine had better clothing on it. (laughs) just because there was much more, there was more there that you saw happening as opposed to happening off screen. In the final version, Moriarty says those things to you. He says those things to Pulaski. He's already come to those conclusions off screen. And then he faces data and tells them those things. Here, he's still trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning. So you're with him on his journey as he tries to sort it through. In the other version, structurally, you don't really get to that until much later with him. 
right? When you finally get to confront him, then he lets you know the journey he's on and where he's going and ultimately where he gets. Um, yeah, and I thought it was good. So, you know, it counts as the same thing. I mean, um, it was one of the, the finish of the other part of the story is, is Hurley tried to steal the credit on the script. <laughs> Huh. Um, so that he, so that, so that, uh, so that Gene would give him, would feel like he had done his job as opposed to failing on everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what story he told him why his was, mine was moved up and, you know, and it suddenly became his, uh, Gene was going through, from what I understand, going through a period at that time where he was rehabbing right after that. And so my, my response was when I saw that it was being filmed was I wrote, a sort of famous letter to, to to Hurley, which ended famously ended with Maurice, you are a weasel, um, <laughs> um, and talked about what a con man he was and how dare he have pulled this nonsense on me, um, and how dare he try to steal the credit, which didn't work. I mean, the writers guild slapped him for it. And, you know, yeah. I wanted, of course, I wanted it was my it was my script. Um, you know, under the rules of the Writers Guild, for sure, because you can mm-hmm. make a lot of. If somebody writes a script and then other people make changes later, those are considered production changes, and then right. you get a credit for that. That's mm-hmm. the, you know, that's the deal. You, you, so, um, I wrote this letter, and then a number of weeks later, I remember driving on the four hundred five in LA and with one of the original car phones, those ones that look like big walkie talkies. Yes. Right? remember those things? It costs a thousand dollars a month. Or <laughs> crazy to use and. It rang and I answered it and it was, Brian, it's Gene. And I said, hey, Gene, how are you? And I hadn't heard from him after the whole brouhaha. And he said, I just wanted to let you know, I found out what happened and I fired the asshole. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I said, what? What? He said, I fired early. How dare he do that to you? And that was sort of, <laughs> that was sort of the conversation. Hurley was gone. Wow. And, you know, and then, uh, and then I had, I had, I had um, script deals for the next season. I had two script deals um, that that I'd gotten through Gene. So then I met with Mike Wagner, who was lovely at man, but then was ill and had to quit before he could start, really, uh, who took over. And then um, the next guy came in whose name escapes me because I didn't like him. I had, I had a run-in with him years earlier on a show called Simon and Simon. Uh-huh. He had a problem with me for some reason. I think he was always afraid I was going to come take his job. And so, um, so that sort of went nowhere, but they wound up doing the second, you know, the sequel episode anyway. And I wound up getting paid for a story on another script too. Mm. Um, so welcome, welcome to the vagaries of Hollywood. (laughs) I I had, I had the fortune and misfortune of being the darling of certain network executives who would constantly call up and, and ask, call my agent or even me and just say, can you go over and, we got a show in trouble. Can you go over and fix it? Can you wow. go in and help out? Um, which was a lovely sentiment, except you know, going in, you're dead. You know, I mean, yeah. you're coming in and everybody wants to get behind you so they can put a knife in you because they all think you're coming there to fire them. Right. right. Not save them, but fire them. So and I was never a credit junk or anything. I'd be happy just to fix the show and leave, you know, be the hired gun and go away. But it never worked out that way. So a lot of these things were like, I'd show up and people were worried, like, am I about to be fired? Why is he here? <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, yeah, there were, so there was a lot of that stuff and a lot of series that I was involved with on that level. So I think the other guy, Mike Pillar, that was his name, and another, right. another dead person. Um, and so he, yeah, he, from the dead, minute he saw it was me, he was like, no, you're not going to, we're going to find a way to get you out of your contract or pay you off, make you go mm-hmm. away. <laughs> so... 
that was why I didn't do more Star Trek other than the, the little bit behind the scenes. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, well, let's, um, I, I want to read through about two more scenes before we actually uh, talk about the finished episode. But sure. um, this is an, uh, a scene, uh, scene 30, Lisa, on, on mm-hmm. page 41. Um, okay. So at this point, um, Pulaski is trapped uh, in the holodeck. Um, they've talked about uh, ways to get her out, but it's proving difficult. Um, it's a similar um, uh, 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 cliffhanger moment, of course, is when like, Data and everyone else kind of recognizes that Moriarty has has a higher level of sentience about the the workings of the Enterprise. Um, but what I love about your first draft here is that it's far more existential. Like there's just a lot more about like um, um, this 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 hologram kind of discovering more about who he is and um, uh, asking those bigger questions that, that feel a lot more meaty, as we talked about in the last scene. Um, but this is a scene now between Data and Picard. Um, at least if you didn't want to kill on being uh, uh, Data, and I guess I will. Take on the, the task of being Picard. Um, not a life dream at all. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So scene Are you going to try the accent? <laughs> we'll find out what happens. Um, uh, scene 30, uh, interior, captain's ready room. Picard is getting dressed in a costume of a Victorian gentleman. Just now he is standing before his mirror, tying his tie, buttoning his waistcoat. Uh, his only remaining task is to pull on the jacket. But before he can, there's a knock at the door and enter. Still dressed as Holmes, including a walking stick, Data enters, talking all the way. Captain, I am sorry to disturb you, but I have thought this through, and I believe the correct choice is for me to resign my commission and have myself brought up in charges of gross negligence. I should have known better. I did know better. Are you planning to go on to the holodeck, sir? That's right, Lieutenant. When the health and safety of the ship and her crew are at stake, it's not the time for me to be delegating my responsibility. Nor is it the time for running yours. The matter of your resignation will be taken up after this Moyati business is concluded. Understood, sir. Then, if I may say, by going onto the holodeck, you will be playing right into Professor Moriarty's hands. How so? I have to confess that he has already achieved his initial goal of defeating me, sir, although I'm not sure exactly how he did it. In any event, if he nonetheless continues to exist, it must be because he has devised a new agenda. I'm listening, Lieutenant. Moriarty has already been gifted of all of my knowledge, Captain. What he lacks is the ability to integrate and oper- oper- operationalize it. He is, for want of a better analogy, rather like a massive database, useless without the appropriate access program. That is where you fit in, Captain. And so I'm to be his new program. He would want me to teach him about the means and ends and rights and wrongs right and wrong. He would expect me to set up his targets and he could shoot them down. Why me, Data? Because you are who I look to for such guidance and Moriarty is burdened with my thought processes. I didn't realize that you characterized me as your burden, Lieutenant. (laughs) Of course I do not. That is not what I... I understand. I was simply trying to make a joke. I tend to do that when I feel unduly flattered. Why, sir? It behooves one to always maintain a good-sized gap between what one is and what one hopes to be, Data. Or what, sir? Or one's head will swell. I believe you now know how painful that is, eh? Data winces, clutches the side of his face as he's got a toothache, and... Indeed, sir. Ow. (laughs) Card pulls his coat, leads Data to the door as, Then come, let us see if we can't best Professor Moyati in a similar fashion by giving him absolutely everything he wants and then some. Picard smiles and exits. It beats as Data puzzles it out 
puzzled it, puzzles it all out. And then he also exits as we fade out. And that's the end of Act 3. What I love about this, Brianna, is the fact that, you, you know, in the finished episode, there's not really a... Um, uh, a second goal for Moriarty. Like he's, he's, it's as if he's gifted sentience and then he's like, what do I do with this? And he's kind right. of just drifting in ways and landing in different ways, but he doesn't really have a plan. And I love how you, in this first draft, he's like, oh no, he, he's actually got a plan in place. And sure. it's, it's really cool. Yeah, no, he's not, he's not easily stopped in the original draft. I mean, he, he sees himself as, at the very least, as being the Moriarty of, of, of Doyle's you know, creation, and therefore he's got to go over the falls with with Holmes. Right. They have, they have to have it out. They have to go over it together. There's got to be some mythology to him. So he's got at least that going. And that's that's the weakness. That's the spot. That's the vulnerability that Picard knows he can take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a way he can humanize him. It's a way he can give him everything. He can give Moriarty everything he wants and yet still take him out. Yeah. So... And were, that's sort of an insight, you, like a human original, insight that yeah. Picard would have that Data wouldn't have. Right, well, and also in the original, I mean, the, did we want to talk about the original ending? Yes, we're going to talk about that next, but if you, okay. if you want to jump ahead. I, I, right. I won't jump there. Okay, okay. I thought we'd read um, scene 52, uh, which is on page... Um, 59. Um, so this is a, for listeners, the script is 70 pages. Which is a <laughs> chunk of pages. <laughs> well, in the old days, we used to write longer scripts. I, I, I see the logic. In there, sure. and if we had to whittle them down to 64 or something, that was okay. But a first draft, 70 page first draft was pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on, when I went to Moonlighting in the first season, those scripts were in the 90s or almost 100. And with a, with a uh, Glenn had put on the front of the, the script a, a, a note that said, do not be alarmed. <laughs> All our scripts <laughs> fast. Our people speak fast and they speak over each other. And it will, you know, this, we won't shoot this many, but of course everybody was panicked that you really were shooting that many pages. Sure. Possible to figure out how to do it. Amazing. Um, all right. So Lisa, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right, great. Um, so why don't you go on playing Moriarty and I'll uh, go on playing Picard. And we'll, we'll all right then. Um, all right. And what I love about this script too is previously to this, there's a far more of a ticking clock as you talked about. Like yep. uh, uh, there's, you know, Jordy has established like he could destroy the the holodeck with the, the particle beam, but it would kill Pulaski in the process. And uh, there's a far more of a sense of of like threat, I think, which is which is great. And there's a whole lot of people here to to help out. Whereas in the finished episode, it's it's Picard and and Data, and then Worf is kind of standing on the outside. But um, here, there's a lot more people, and there's also the mystery in place too of like where is Pulaski? Whereas in the uh, show, uh, they've already been there, so they kind of know where they're going. But right. um, anyway, let's get right on into this here. Um, Moriarty's lair. The quaking is outrageous. The ceilings and walls of the lair are starting to crumble, brick by brick. Picard and Data and Pulaski are unable to stand. Moriarty is hanging on the level, on the lever, in order to remain upright. Moriarty, don't you see what you're doing? You're not coming... Oh, I should explain. (laughs) Um, uh, So uh, Moriarty's plan at this point is he knows he can't attain a physical form at this point, but he does want to basically captain the Enterprise, right? And so he has devised this whole system where he can control things from the holodeck itself. And Picard uh, was able to find where Moriarty's lair was 
through a little bit of, of logic that uh, data couldn't didn't quite have, as, as Brianna was talking about earlier, that sense of like uh, data can't um, uh, uh, lacks a level of imagination that, that is required to, to make it happen, whereas Picard was able to. And there was a moment that is actually in the in the finished episode, um, but here it actually has a it's, it's important is that Picard uh, uh, kneels down at one point and picks up uh, uh, tuppence and uh, uh, that comes into play in a moment. Uh, so now they're in Moriarty's lair and Moriarty has instigated that lever action of a thing that could destroy the ship. And uh, so that's why the room is shaking. Um, Moriarty, don't you see what you're doing? You're not commandeering the Enterprise. You're destroying a... What better way to prove my power? Does not smite make right? Data crawls, creeps, edges closer to Moriarty as your brilliance has tipped over into madness, man. You've got to back off. And Data hurls himself up to Moriarty and the lever. And Data knocks Moriarty sprawling, then grabs the lever and shoves it down to disengage. But the quaking continues. Ba-boom, ba-boom. And Moriarty smiles. It's rather like Holmes's violin, I'm, I'm afraid. It will respond to the touch of some, but not of others. Which I love that too, since the beginning of the episode, you see his violin. It's almost yeah. like you planned it that way. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, computer, exit. No door appears. Captain, I'm surprised at you. We're at the very center of the holodeck. There are no doors close by. All right, Moriarty, you win. You can have my ship, her crew. I admit, you have beaten me too. Excellent. I respect a man who knows when to fold his hand. So, until I can convert myself to matter and get off this infernal deck, I shall need to be able to run things from down here. You will have to build me a helm. All right, then allow me to leave and I will make the arrangements with engineering. No, you will stay. And Holmes and the doctor here may go to handle the arrangements. That is out of the question. You have the captain's word, Professor. He will do as you have asked. But I should be the one to stay. There is much I can teach you. It is, after all, my database that forms the core of your knowledge. Continuing, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I have been waiting for this last desperate trick on your part, android. You hope to get the humans off the deck so you can wash it with a purifying particle beam, as you know that it would not damage your inhuman circuitry. Now what, Captain? It's up to the professor. This is his game. Computer, arch. And then the arch materializes, with rubble falling and battering it, as Moriarty slides over and inputs a command, and windows and doors materialize in the appropriate spaces. Through the windows, we can see the London street as all the structures around it are collapsing. The robot stays and the doctor may go. Picard stays. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Picard eyes Data and Pulaski. So ordered. But Captain... Just hurry, Lieutenant, before the ship comes completely unglued. Reluctantly, Data nods and Pulaski props herself against Data, leads him out, both staggering through the door. And as we look through the windows, we can see them working their way down the street towards the distant set of slightly parted holodeck doors. Now Moriarty, eyes Picard, a beat, and... We're going to die together, aren't we? Yes. And you are truly willing to sacrifice yourself in order to save your ship? Yes. Moriarty indicates the ever more distant figures of Data and Pulaski. That's why I let them go, so they could live to tell of the greatness of our duel. We would be nothing without our Reichenbeck Falls and our Watsons to chronicle it. And your goal was? Simply to be remembered. Mine too. 
a moment and then enterprise bridge, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Riker and Troy, uh, I guess we can skip all this. Um, yeah. Basically there's, uh, <laughs> there's some tenseness, tenseness, tenseness. And then, um, uh, you know, they, they, they work and Jordy actually instigates the particle beam, which is right. another thing we don't actually see in the episode. That's more of just like a, uh, 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 just a there. Yeah. And then I'd like us to go all the way down to the bottom, Lisa, I think this is a lovely little moment to end on. But if you can go to uh, scene 67, um, which is on page uh, 65. Um, page 67, got it. I, I mean, uh, scene 67, I got it. Okay. And if you could just go from there, uh, Enterprise and the Red Giant reestablishing. Personal log of Lieutenant Commander Data, stardate 42937.4. It is with a heavy heart that I take up my pen to write these, the last words in which I shall ever record, the singular gifts by which my friend Captain Jean-Luc Picard was distinguished. Now, for those of you at home, this is mirroring the, the final lines and the final problem of uh, John H. Watson, which I, I really appreciated. Um, <laughs> but also to, to establish for the viewer, you would think Picard died in the holodeck right. um, yes. with the particle beam. Um, interior data's quarters data still dressed as Holmes, albeit a rather tattered one is sitting and taping those words as he reads them from Holmes's the adventure of the final problem. Uh, but a knock at the door interrupts. Come in. The door opens revealing Jordy still dressed as Watson. He peers in, but stays outside in the corridor. You all right, data. Just trying to record a proper epitaph for the captain. It is the least I can do. Maybe you ought to wait for a while. No, I want to do it while he, while he is still alive in my mind. How about if I do you one better and make the captain alive in your very room? And before Data can respond, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, dressed in his Victorian finery, steps in, steps from behind Jordy and into Data's quarters. I do not understand. Captain, I left you with Moriarty. Not me, Data. A hologram. Like Moriarty himself. Remember when you encouraged me to hold my voice down so Moriarty would not overhear... I made everyone think I was whispering to Jordy about the particle beam, but in reality, I was instructing him to program the holodeck program to generate my image onto the stage. But that was the real you that went onto the holodeck with me. So it was, but when you lost me in the crowd on the streets, when I supposedly bent down to pick up the tuppence, that was when I made the switch with my holographic pro double, and I crept from the holodeck and hid out in a handy storage compartment. <laughs> Why did you not tell me of your plan? Because it was imperative that everyone else believed that it was really me. You were right about Moriarty. He could see through any subterfuge, but he was determined to stake his claim to history by taking me down with him. So I literally had to give him me, a hologram who sincerely believed he was me. And you convinced Moriarty all, all the more when you tried to save me and get him to take you instead. Astounding. Elementary. <laughs> uh, and I guess from there, it pretty much ties it all up really nicely. But um, yeah. uh, I, I love this finale. I think um, it's such a shame that it, it kind of the whole final two acts of, of the finished episode change uh, dramatically and become much more of kind of a, uh, they expand out on that sort of final Moriarty on we and, and turn that into just being like, well, he meets Picard and, and then gives up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, throws in the towel. Very unmore very very unmoriarty like. A little bit, yeah. a little bit. Um but thank you so much for sharing that first draft with us. It was yeah, so, I like, so I much still fun. Like it. Thank you guys for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> uh thank you for I still like that. That's still my favorite draft. 
We're going to hit pause right there and come back next week with part two of our discussion about elementary My Dear Data with the writer of the episode, Brianna Lane, where we'll conduct a commentary for the finished episode and do a bit more comparing and contrasting with the first draft. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at on Twitter at TrexpertsBR, as well as on Instagram at the Trexperts Briefing Room. We want to thank our sound engineer, Mark Rivera, as well as everyone at Electric Entertainment, including producers Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. So until next time, I'm Peter Holmstrom, and the briefing room is now closed. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.